Gee, mister, that's some straight shooting. What do you say your name was? I'm Gary Groth. I am the co-founder of Fanographics Books and the Comics Journal and currently the editor of the Comics Journal and currently one of the publishers of Fanographics. Tell me something I don't know. I wanted to get into your background in journalism. I have no experience in journalism, but the idea of ethics, especially because we edit these interviews, I'm interested to hear, you know, what do you have to guard against whenever you're editing somebody's words? Well, you know, first we try to get have final edit over the interview, uh, so we aren't as gracious as you are. Um, you know, I explain to the person going in that uh, you know anything he says on the record is on the record. In terms of of editing the interview, we certainly clean it up. Um, you know, because we we take out all the ums and ohs and errs and ums uh, and all the hesitations and all the you knows and, and that sort of thing. Um, we rearrange, we can, we can restructure the interview if we think it's appropriate. What we try, what I try not to do is to change the interview in any way that changes what, you know, what the person says or the meaning of what the person's talking about. You know, I try to do pretty unfiltered interviews. I mean, I don't want the person to be cutting out the guts of the interview, um, you know, or, or editing out remarks that he, you know, in retrospect thinks were imprudent because sometimes those are the, you know, that's the kind of truth you want to get to. Although I do take into account, I mean, if, if I interview somebody and he, and he asks me, you know, I'd like to take this out for whatever reason, um, I certainly consider that, but um, we like to retain the final edit of the interview. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, and in fact, I should say before we go much further, Fanographics has published uh, some of my comics and is publishing Ed Pisker's next graphic novel, you know, in the interest right. of full disclosure for anyone listening to the show. That's right. So, did you study journalism in school? Well, I did. I studied journalism at the University of Maryland uh, for a year. I majored in journalism there. It was my last year of college. It was uh, technically, I think, my third year of college, um, at which point I dropped out of college. Uh, so, I did technically study journalism, but I probably learned more about journalism on my own than I did in college. And that's just by, you know, reading the works of, of journalists and paying attention to journalism and, and reading books about the subject and then starting to practice it uh, in the comics journal. Was there much journalism in comics at the time? Oh, no, there was almost no journalism in comics. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to start doing journalism for comics, because there really wasn't any. That would be in 1976 when we started the comics journal. And one of my goals was to practice real journalism toward the comic book industry. Are you familiar with a magazine called Inside Comics? No. This was the only other magazine I know of that did practice journalism, and it came out sometime around 74, possibly 75. It didn't last very long. It was about 18 months. It was edited by a guy named Joe Brancatelli, who was a real journalist, and he had, um, he had real experience in journalism. And he approached journalism from a, a, a you know a professional and even a muckraking point of view. That's the only you know the only fan type magazine that I that I know of that practiced journalism before the Comics Journal. And I remember reading it. And I remember um, being elated by it because it was so unlike all the fanzines that were being published at the time. All of which were simply cheerleaders, uh, you know, for comics, for the comics industry, for comics publishers, for you know everybody. One of the things I wanted to do with the Comics Journal very early on was to establish an opposition against the prevailing ethos of the comic book industry. In order to do that, we needed to practice muckraking journalism. And this is primarily in opposition to corporate comics like Marvel and DC and their practices against well, you know, creatives? Yes, it was that. Um, it was both economically and creatively. I think it was we were we were positioning ourselves in opposition to the economic and creative status quo of the major companies, which you have to realize in 1976 were almost the only game in town. There were very few underground comics at that time. There were you know, virtually there were no alternative comics. There were just hints of independent publishing at the time. So, so 90. You know, 98% of comics publishing were Marvel, DC, Archie, and the major companies. So yes, we were really opposed to both, and somewhat paradoxically, because they 
Um, you know, in a sense, they sometimes ran afoul of each other, but we were opposed to both the creative and the financial status quo. What did you object to in terms of the financial practices? Well, generally, creators were treated like shit. And um, we thought that they should be treated more like legitimate authors. Now, of course, the Catch-22 there is that most of them weren't legitimate authors. Most of them were, were working on corporate properties. But we thought that they should be treated better than they were. Uh, I remember early on, around 77 or 78, I attended a, um, an initial meeting of, the, of what Neil Adams wanted to form as a comics guild. And this meeting took place in Neil's studio, Continuity in New York, and somehow I wheedled a place in it. And this was an attempt to start, a, you know, essentially what was a comics union or a comics guild. And it was absolutely packed with virtually every significant professional working in comics at the time. And they had a really vigorous conversation about you know, what, it, what it involved, um, what it entailed to start a comic skill, whether that was plausible or whether it was feasible. And it was a really volatile meeting. And uh, what I did there was I sat in on it, I taped it, and then I transcribed it when I got back, and we ran it in the Comics Journal, along with, I think, a, an accompanying journalistic piece by me. But that's the kind of thing that didn't appear in, in fanzines prior to the Comics Journal. And that's precisely the kind of thing I wanted to get out in the open, to give professionals an opportunity to air their grievances, to talk about the companies, to talk about um, their dissatisfactions, and to talk about their lot. And then simultaneously, we were also engaged in a full-scale assault, the creative work itself, which I also thought was miserable. So at the time, you know, the, the comics landscape is dominated by lousy yeah. comics and poor business practices. What interested you in comics in the first place to think this is a, you know, this is a direction to start a career or, you know, to aim your, <laughs> your journalism at? Well, uh, for, I mean, first of all, I, I wasn't thinking in terms of a career. I had no long-term plans. You know, I had like a 30-day plan which was, you know, how could I pay my rent the next month and do something that I cared about. So I never thought of doing this. I mean, I just never thought in terms of a career. The reason I did it is because I was studying journalism. I was interested in journalism. You know, one of my ambitions was to be a journalist. But I have a problem with authority, and I know that. And I have a problem working with, you know, for others. I was a lousy employee. When I was in college and, and after I got out of college, I worked a, um, you know, a whole bunch of, of jobs and I either usually got fired or quit in a huff. And so I knew I had that problem. So I, I figured the only option I had was to work for myself. And again, I wanted to do something that I could take responsibility for. I did not want to be a, a cog in a corporate machine. I mean, I knew enough even then, even when I was you know, 19 or 20, that I didn't want to do that. And so the only option I felt was to work for myself, but you know I really didn't have any skills per se. And the only skills I had were I had this this sort of vast knowledge, this vast and useless knowledge of comic books, and the ability to put together a periodical, you know, which I'd done since I was 13 years old. You know, I had all the equipment, I had the skills to do that, I had the uh, the drawing board, the typewriters, the ability to lay out pages back then. It was all you know pre-computer, obviously. And so the only thing I could think of doing with all of this was to get back into comics and to start a, you know, this quixotic effort to impose critical standards and real journalism on the comics industry. In retrospect, it looks like a you know, pretty preposterous thing to do at the time, but it almost seemed like you know, that was my best shot. Were you still reading any comics at the time, you know, as a fan? Uh, yeah, I was. Um, I mean, I, you know, I stopped reading comics for about, I don't know, a year or so. I, I graduated from high school. I went into college. I still published some fanzines in my first year of college, but there was about a year or so when I really stopped reading comics. I thought it was pretty much over. And it was sort of a confusing, chaotic part of my life. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And I was looking for a direction. I was looking for something to do, and I couldn't figure out what I could do that, again, I could take some pride in, that um, I could take responsibility for, that I felt I could do something good and useful or something that I could, you know, something that I could impose.
was my conscience on. I really want I, I, the, the whole idea of working eight hours a day and doing something that you didn't care about struck me as um, you know just a, a terrible way to live your life. And so I wanted to avoid that. So I stopped reading comics. You know, tried to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. But my partner, my, my then partner, Mike Catcher, and I put all of our efforts into a rock and roll convention, uh, the proceeds from which we were going to put into a publishing company. And I think what we wanted to do was to start a kind of politically radical publishing company, not necessarily anything about comics. And uh, because this convention we put on completely blew up in our faces, and, and not only did we not make any money, but we lost money, we had to you know, figure out what else to do. This was based on like comic book conventions that you had seen and were familiar with, but you were then going to feature rock and roll artists? Yeah, right. That was the brilliant idea. The, the idea was that if I could put on a, a reasonably successful comic book convention, which I, which I did, rock and roll is a hundred times more popular than comic books, and we could, you know, we could be, it would be a hundred times more successful and we would make a lot of money, which we could then use to start a publishing company. Um, so we did that in 1975. It failed, you know, miserably. And uh, then we were casting around for what else to do. You know, what, what else could we do that we could do ourselves? This rock and roll convention, Hunter Thompson came to this? Yep. Uh, we, we signed up Hunter Thompson uh, as, as a guest speaker. Uh, I did that through the, the Rolling Stone um, Lecture Bureau. And I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And uh, Rolling Stone had an office in Washington, D.C., so it was easy to, to talk to them. And uh, we arranged for Hunter Thompson to appear, which was a great experience. He was supposed to come over, I think, Saturday at a certain time, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and give a 90-minute talk. And sometime during the convention, and, I, and, I, and looking back on it, I don't know really why I would get a phone call to get the convention, or even how I would get a call to the convention, because there were no cell phones, but somehow the Rolling Stone Lecture Bureau called me up, and, he, and, and they said, Hunter is at his hotel, and he needs a ride to the convention. Can you go get him? So I said, yeah, sure, of course. So I jump in my car and I go to his hotel, and what confronts me is this surreal Hunter Thompson-esque scene, where I park in front of the hotel and there's a protest in the ho in front of the hotel, and I forget what, what kind of a protest it was. I don't know if it was like a union protest or a, a political protest, but there were all these people marching with signs. So there was this, you know, semi chaos going on in front of the hotel, and I get out of the car and I'm like trying to figure out where Hunter Thompson is, and he's you know he's tall and he's recognizable, he's iconic, so I figure I could find him. And I see this head pop out of a stairwell at the hotel. And, of course, it has a hat, and there's a, um, a cigarette holder with a cigarette dangling from it. And I see this head kind of popping up and down, up and down. And I realize it's Thompson. So I scream, Hunter, at the top of my lungs. He pops out of the stairwell and just dives for my car. You know, goes through this picket line or whatever it was. And jumps into the car, and I drive him back to the convention center. And he actually, you know, he delivers his talk. I think he's both soused and high, um, so he kind of gives this rambling speech, but, you know, it's sort of pure Thompson-esque, and it worked out. Were you a fan of his at the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I read Hunter Thompson, I think, during that period in my life when I was viscerally disconnected from everything I saw around me, mainstream America. And, you know, I realized that, you know, American society was just, off-kilter. There was something wrong about it. And I, couldn't, I, I didn't have the, the intellectual capacity to put my finger on it, but I knew that I didn't want to be a part of it. It was during that period where I read you know, a number of authors, including Hunter Thompson, which was just an enormous breath of fresh air because here was, you know, here was a guy who was expressing you know, the same reservations about American society that I felt but couldn't articulate myself. So yeah, he was, he was, uh, you know, I thought he was a great writer, and I still do. When did you start working with Kim Thompson? Very early on. Um, Kim came on in 77. So I think it was a little, after, a little over a year after uh, my Catron and I started the Comics Journal, which was then titled the Nostalgia Journal. We changed the title uh, to the Comics Journal about six or seven issues into it. Kim came over. We were, we were operating out of my apartment. I had a three-bedroom apartment. And I had a roommate, and I had one bedroom devoted to um, the Comics Journal office. And Kim came over one day. He was introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours. He was a comics fan. 
and I think he had just arrived in the country. I don't think he had actually lived in the United States up until then, so I think it was literally the first time he set foot on American soil uh, because he, he was born and raised in Europe. And Kim was a, a huge comics fan. He read them over there, he read European comics, he read, um, I guess he read American comics, I think sort of years after they came out here, he would get them over in Europe. And so, you know, he saw what we were doing with the comics journal, and he basically just said, you know, do you need any help? I'm not doing anything. He was probably, he was probably up 20. And we just said, my catcher and I said, sure, we need all the help we can get. You know, we were always trying to conscript, um, you know, interns or kids to help us because there was a lot of work to do. And so Kim started coming over several times a week. And, you know, I just showed him what there was to do in the comics journal. And he was a fast study. And um, eventually, you know, he, he was, you know, so helpful that Mike and I wanted to share a piece of the company with him. You know, he just basically was proved, you know, proving so, so helpful and so much a part of the you know, what we were doing. I can barely say company because, I mean, we're just, you know, two or three people. And then so uh, we gave him a share of the company, I don't know, sometime around 78 probably. So we've been, you know, we've been working together for 35 years. Pretty terrifying thought. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly time passes. Can you talk a little bit about what your responsibilities are, you, Kim? I, you know, I I don't know what exactly you guys all do and how the division of labor is broken up, and I'm just curious what you know a typical week is like. <laughs> well, that's, if, if it isn't too boring, I'll you know, I'll try to give you some sense of that. Well, we always have books in the pipeline, and so basically, Kim has books he's responsible for. I have books I'm responsible for. Um, Eric Reynolds, who is our associate publisher, um, as of you know a few years ago also started taking on books that he is responsible for. And that means that we're, you know, we're, we're each individually the point man for those books. You know, we deal directly with the author or we deal with the licensor or, you know, whatever. So we're, we're all of us constantly working simultaneously on probably 20 books. And they're in various stages of production. I mean, and then we get the very, very beginning um, of production where, you know, you just have to consult with the author. Um, or they could be at the end of the production where you are just bearing down on it and spending most of your time on that specific book. And then there's that, you know, that intermediate time, which could be as long as 12 to 18 months where you're doing various things on it. So we're constantly doing that. Then there's just the, you know, the day-to-day -day purely functional things that have to be done in a business. There's that whole financial side that you have to be, you have to watch. Um, you know, we have financial meetings. We have to look at our sales. We have to read um, P&L statements. We have to, you know, make sure we're, that we're not going out of business. You know, that's, that takes up X number of hours a week. There is the purely utilitarian stuff. You know, employees have problems. They have, um, they have suggestions. You know, so there's that. Um, I try to keep on top of, you know, marketing efforts. I have to keep on top of, you know, what, how many books are selling. I have to establish print runs. So a lot of it is just that, just making sure that the machine that we've created to publish good books is functioning smoothly. I mean, I swear, I swear to God, I must spend two-thirds of my life answering emails. You know, I feel like I got real work done or something, but um, I'll literally answer 100 emails a day. And then I go to bed realizing, you know, and I'm just just about to go to sleep, I realize there was an email I forgot to answer that was buried, you know, 12 hours earlier. Do you so, work a typical five-day week? I work a typical seven-day week. No, I, I do work. I often work seven days a week. I have an office at home, which is where I'm sitting right now. And I have a computer here, and I have access to most of what I need, not everything, not everything that, that's at the office. But I have an, a home office, so I can work. And I'll tell you what, one of the reasons I started the company was so that I didn't have a nine-to-five job. I hated the whole idea of getting up at seven o'clock in the morning. First of all, I'm not a morning person. I hated the whole idea of getting up early, trudging to work, and then, you know, punching the time clock out. I just hated that. It was part of my um, visceral dislike of this whole regimented post-industrial work system that we've created. So my work is very organic. There's an upside to that and a downside. The downside is I'm never not fucking working. 
the upside is that I can work my own hours. So I can get up late. I can spend the first two or three hours in my home office working. Uh, the first thing I do is just, you know, answer all the emails that have accumulated over the previous 12 hours. Then I go to the office and I work more there. And then I come home and uh, I do whatever I do. But then I get back to work at maybe midnight or one o'clock in the morning and I can work till three or four. It's great because I can communicate with our Asian printers. Um, they'll send me an email at two in the morning and I'll answer them. And, you know, I'll get a shock response. Not anymore, but um, they know they can get a response from me when it's, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon their time now. Is the work fulfilling to you? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I do ask, my, I, I ask myself that question, you know, three times a day. Often when it seems like it isn't fulfilling, there are hassles every day. There are problems that come up. There, there are difficulties and hurdles and gigantic pains in the ass that you have to deal with constantly. And whenever I think about that, uh, or whenever I'm lamenting that, I try to step back and think about what a blessed existence I actually have. So despite all the headaches and all the hassles and all the problems, you know, and they're, they're, and they're more than you can imagine, it is incredibly fulfilling. And I feel quite fortunate doing what I'm doing. I mean, you know, I mean, how many people can be thoroughly invested in what they do and, and take pride in what they do? Uh, you know, most people are just working to make money so that they can take a vacation and retire early. And, um, you know, what a terrible existence that is. I, I interviewed Gan Wilson. He was talking about exactly this. And he was talking about what a, you know, what a, what a great life he's had. He considers himself a bohemian. And he still has, I think, that bohemian spirit. And uh, we were talking about exactly the same thing about, I mean, you know, and he's not, you know, he's, he's not by any means wealthy, but he's, you know, he's 84 years old and he's been able to do what he wants to do. So in many ways, it's just an unbelievably wonderful life. What is the role of a publisher today? What is the value of a publisher, say? Um, you know, in, in this era now when people can self-publish pretty easily, probably easier than they've ever been able to in the past in terms of reaching readership, you know, what do you see your role as a publisher? Well, one of the advantages is that I can deal with most of the bullshit that you don't have to deal with. You know, all the problems and hassles I talked about, well, we can deal with both of those. And the, the artist or the author can spend most of his time being an artist or being an author. Um, I mean, that's slightly glib. There's, there's a lot of truth to that. I think mostly what a publisher can offer an artist is expertise, you know, in terms of actually producing the book, uh, designing a book, distributing the book, marketing the book, editing. He's there to support the artist in every way through that whole process. And, you know, that's something the artist by himself, you know, just has a hard time doing, you know, even though it's possible and even though I, I certainly don't discourage it. But we can get the book into bookstores. You know, we've, we've spent years establishing a great relationship with a distributor. We know marketing inside and out. Um, I, I have such incredible confidence in the people that work in our office um, on every level. So I think it comes down to the expertise that we can offer uh, an author. Do you feel that that has changed in the last, you know, 15 or 20 or 25 years? I think it's evolving, but I don't know if it's fundamentally changed. I mean, it could change. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it, if it does change. But, you know, no, you know the, the, the capitalist model is what it is. And irrespective of any technological innovations, I think that model is going to stay, you know, for good or ill, is going to stay there, you know. Artists are, are, you know, need to be marketed. They need to market themselves. And some artists are really great at that. Some artists are terrible at that. Some artists don't even want to do it. I mean, we work with artists who simply do not want to do it. They will not go to a convention. They will not be interviewed. Uh, they have no interest in that. Those are probably the more successful artists who can, <laughs> who can, uh, you know, adopt that attitude. Then we have artists who, you know, who are who are just fine doing that. They're happy to do that. But you know. Setting all that stuff up, dealing with, you know, dealing with the bureaucracy. I mean, you know, part of what we do is, you know, the kind of stuff that I'm not that crazy about doing, but we do it and we do it well, um, regardless. And that's something that, you know, is hard for a lot of creative people to do. That's not going to change. 
How did you feel in the last few years as cartoonists were moving to like traditional book publishers, like New York publishers? You know, when it was art, when it was art as we published, I was you know I wasn't all that crazy about it. It's always you know painful when an artist that you you published moves to a you know to another publisher, uh, you know, a, a, a corporate publisher. But it happens because artists have to make these decisions for themselves. You know, they have to make decisions that they think are, are right for themselves. Whenever there is a perceived market for something, you know, all the existing corporations are going to jump on it. And, and you, you were probably um, around four or five, six years or so ago when cartoonists were getting these incredible contracts for graphic novels because, you know, places like HarperCollins or St. Martin's or Simon & Schuster uh, suddenly thought that there was a graphic novel boom and this was the next big thing to jump onto. Turned out not to be the case, pretty evidently. And that's, you know, and, and the perception among corporate publishers has changed considerably and they're not doing that anymore. I can't say that really affected me too much. I mean, I, I, it's, it's almost this inevitability that you're, that you just learn to accept, you know, even though I think it resulted in a lot of lousy work and a lot of lousy graphic novels. To some extent, that's inevitable. You know, the majority of anything that's produced is going to fall under lousy. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, that wasn't the case. I'll tell you, I was so, I was so um, naive in the 80s. That wasn't, and it wasn't the case in the 80s. You know, there was this period, this, this golden period from, you know, um, 81 to, you know, 88 or something like that, almost exactly that, where the majority of alternative comics were good. You could almost buy, you know, any independently published comic and, you know, it would have some aesthetic virtues to it. That pretty much stopped around the time of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which would be somewhere around 87 or 88. But there was that sweet spot where I think we were, you know, we were able to delude ourselves, that small group of us, um, you know, us and people like the Hernandez brothers, and Dan Klaus and Pete Bag. You know, we really thought that, yeah, there was going to be this, this renaissance where only, you know, good cartoonists were going to flourish. And, of course, that turned out not to be the case, as it couldn't possibly be in this environment. That's interesting to hear you describe that, because I feel like we're sort of living in a time now when there are so many people producing comics. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems like there's a, a lot of talent producing interesting comics right now. And it's probably mm-hmm. the same percentage of, you know, 90% of them are terrible or whatever, but in sheer numbers, there are so many good comics being produced at this moment. At what point, whenever you started producing the journal, did you start to see a shift more towards celebrating the art side of it as opposed to just concentrating on watchdogging the industry? That occurred when there was an art side to concentrate on. And there were, good, there were comics being published uh, when the journal started that we thought were aesthetically in keeping with, with our, you know, what we consider to be our, our mission. There were still, you know, there were still underground comics being published. We had an underground columnist by the name of Bill Sherman. He wrote about underground comics every issue. Uh, Cerebus and Elfquest were self-published in 1978. Raw and Weirdo started in 1981. So it was pretty early on after we started the journal that this rise in independent publishing began, and that we could sort of shift away from almost exclusively doing nothing but assaulting the major companies to um, you know, to focusing on work, uh, on, on artists whose work we admired and respected. So, that, you know, that probably happened, you know, 79, 80, 81, somewhere in there. Um, I remember in 1970, probably 1977, we interviewed Gil Kane, who was, you know, an iconoclastic mainstream creator who spoke his mind, you know, one of the one of, if not, one, I was going to say one of the few, but he might have been the only one. So we were always trying to get dissident voices into the magazine, you know, as early as we could. And, you know, and, and this, this ripening of, of work started showing up in the early 80s. Were you a big comics historian in the sense of, were you reading, you know, European work that early on? Were you well-read in terms of comic strips? In a scattershot kind of way, I was. I mean, back then it was far more difficult to, you know, to find this work. You know, you know it's hard to say how widely read I was. I, I, you know, I read some European stuff, but, you know, it had to be translated because I don't speak the languages. 
you know, I read Bill Blackbeard and Martin Williams' Smithsonian book of, um, of newspaper strips when that came out, which I think was in the early 70s, um, and that was a revelation. Bill Blackbeard later went on to do a series of comic strip reprints for a, a press called Hyperion. I read all of those. So, I, I, you know, I read what I could. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, when I was 14 or 15 or something like that, I read comic book histories, like things like the Penguin History of Comics, and I would... Uh, or, or Martin Sheridan's history of comics, and uh, but because I didn't have access to the newspaper strips that they were talking about, and a lot of the old comic books, this was a very exotic world to me. Um, I was fascinated by it, but there was only so much I could actually learn about it. But I did learn as much as I could. I'm not sure if that answers your question very. Yeah, the thing that that fascinates me in doing research on fanographics and on your work, it seems like. What you ultimately did is hard to imagine doing whenever you started. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Other people have told us that, too. And I think I know what you mean. I mean, there was this peculiar sense in which we almost had to will into existence the kind of comics we wanted. I mean, we didn't, because that, <laughs> that required cartoonists, and we weren't cartoonists. Um, and I can't quite tell you why we were so pig-headed about, you know, imagining the kinds of work that later was going to actually happen, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, we are pretty um, strong-willed and pig-headed about that sort of thing. But, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about, that it does seem kind of um, incongruous that we could, you know, we, we, would, we would start a magazine championing great work when there was virtually no great work to champion. Is that what you're saying, sort of? That's exactly it. And ultimately, I wanted to get your impression on how things have developed, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, because I often look around and think, whenever I was 12 and I wanted to be a cartoonist, the world as it exists now isn't even something I would have dreamt of, you know, in terms of comics being um, widely read and accepted and what we have access to as readers and fans. And it's And I just wonder, you know, from your point of view what you make of the current comics landscape. Well, you know, it's, it's so radically different from what, you know, from what the landscape was in the late 70s. And, you know, all, in fact, all through the 80s, I mean, we, were, we were beating our head against this wall. And, um, and, I, and I guess in a way, you know, what's happened is what we wanted to happen. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe not exactly. And I, and I couldn't foresee exactly how it would unfold. But, you know, but the fact is that... Um, uh, a wider public is aware of something called graphic novels, and there is this, um, you know, this this genre of literary graphic novel. And I suppose that's what we were aiming for all those years. You know, what we envisioned actually came to pass. The thing is, we could never um, foreseen how exactly it, you know it would happen. I mean, we were we were too busy pummeling away at the moment to envision how it would actually happen or, or what it would look like but you know the last 10 15 years have just exploded now, you know i remember in the 1980s we were desperately trying to get distributed in bookstores and uh, my naive thought and a lot of this requires naivete and a lot of energy a lot of youthful energy uh, we, were, we were desperately trying to get into bookstores and we and, and my thought was if only we get into bookstores everybody will recognize the brilliance of these comics and buy them and, uh, of course, it's much more complicated than that. We got into bookstores, and, uh, you know, virtually nobody bought our books. This, this was in the late 80s. You, you, you probably remember or know of that period when The Watch, Watchmen was out there. Mouse came out in 1988. Watchmen came out around the same time. Um, and we published uh, several Love and Rockets collections, you know, specifically for the book trade, specifically for sort of non-comics readers that we thought would appeal to um, people who just bought you know, fiction. And by and large, that didn't work. There, there just wasn't, you know, it wasn't the right time and uh, there wasn't enough momentum. You know, it took another 10 or 12 years for that to happen. What's the role of the Comics Journal and comics criticism now? The role of the journal has changed substantially. And I think one reason for that is because the kinds of publishing arrangements that creators have now ha has improved. Um, from the time the Comics Journal started. And we've achieved this kind of equilibrium where, you know, it might not be ideal for creators, 
but it's about as good as it's going to get, you know, given the, the capitalist realities. It's about as good as it's going to get. Creators, you know, certain creators can negotiate better deals for themselves. Um, you know, the rank and file creators probably get the same deal that, you know, that they were getting in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, which means a page rate. Um, a lot of creators can negotiate very, very good deals, you know, not only with smaller publishers like us, but with big corporate publishers. So the journal's role in terms of creator rights, I think, has been, you know, completely or severely diminished because, you know, we've achieved a certain level of, of, um, of balance between authors and publishers. I mean, that, 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 that's been achieved. I mean, it was achieved, you know, through the 1980s and into the 1990s. And it wasn't obviously only the Comics Journal that, that did that. You know, there were a whole bunch of factors involved in that. So I see the journal's role, you know, severely diminished in that regard. And then creatively, a lot of what the journal used to do is now taken up by blogs. You know, you, you throw a rock at the Internet without hitting a comic critic or a so-called comic critic, and there's just so much writing about comics, I can't keep up with it. Back in the 80s, I mean, there were just a, a few magazines about comics being published. And now, you know, you have literally, you know, dozens of websites and, and hundreds of blogs. So, you know, what I've done with the journal um, as a result of that is we've turned it into a, you know, a, a, an annual or a biannual that's 700 pages long, and it's packed with some very, you know, very substantial um, essays and critiques and interviews and so forth, and that's how I've adapted to the environment. I mean, we're you know we're no longer needed to come out on a monthly basis and just wail on on bad comics and champion good comics. The internet is there for that. So I see our, our role as being substantially different than it was 15 or 20 years ago. Do you read any comics for pleasure? Oh yeah, I mean most of the comics I read are for pleasure. And, you know, I mean, even the comics we publish, which I read because I need, you know, I need to proofread them and I need to look at them closely. I mean, I wouldn't publish them if I didn't find an aesthetic pleasure from them. But, but yeah, I do read comics for pleasure. I was just reading a volume of Little Orphan Annie the other day. I was just reading um, uh, David Lasky and Frank Young's Carter Family. So, I'm, you know, I'm reading comics. I mean, almost every night I read some comics. It's interesting you mentioned Annie. That's an IDW book, I believe. Yes. I remember years ago after the Peanuts came out and they started their Dick Tracy archives, and the okay. cover design was exactly the same. Identical, yes. How do you feel whenever that happens? Well, you know, in that particular instance, I was pretty amused. I mean, it's, it's, it's so weirdly inappropriate. Ashley Wood is credited as the designer for that Dick Tracy series. And I remember being beside myself seeing that credit because, like, it's, it's bad enough to copy someone's design, but then to sign your name to it. They should take credit for it. Right, right. I guess they didn't write a little after Seth on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. I'm curious about the state of comics criticism, which was barely existent 35 years ago, it still feels like it's in its early stages to me, and I was curious, as a critic, what your assessment of that is. Well, you know, you're probably right. It probably is still in its early stages, but there's a lot of good criticism out there. I mean, there's a lot of gibberish. There's a lot, a lot of noise. A lot of stuff that I wouldn't give, you know, pay two cents to read. But there are a handful of you know, really excellent writers about comics. Um, I would single out someone like uh, Jared Gardner, uh, Rich Kreiner sheet here, Dan Nadell. There, there are a handful of, of, of people who are sensitive to the form, who have a, a grounded background. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, they have a, a wide frame of reference they can bring to bear on comics and do a good job. I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff out there, and I don't really pay attention to you know, the vast majority of it. And I don't understand all these blogs writing critiques of the latest issue of Aquaman or Wonder Woman or something like that. I can't even, it's hard for me to comprehend that. There are so many more comics, and there's so much worse criticism than there ever was. If you took a you know an average year's run of the comics journal from 1986, you know the level of criticism you know across the board was probably very high. If you and the journal was virtually the only magazine publishing criticism. If you take criticism across the board on the internet, well, probably generally pretty terrible. It's just a handful of really superlative critics. But again, that's the nature of the beast.
and it's a shame too because I think, I think we're living in a time when good criticism is needed more than ever because there is so much work being done. And I think the general level of work has risen, but there's also the sense to me that the great work uh, is still few and far between. And so it's really hard to establish the good from the better. The average level of, I don't know, well done or, or, or personally or personally crafted work has risen. But then to distinguish between the good and the bad of that, result we sharper and sharper minds to do that. And I'm not sure, you know, we're, we're getting those in, in great quantities. Do you think that the nature of comics has been changed by its wider acceptance? Well, sure. I mean, you know, one thing that changed it is that, um, you know, nobody does floppy comic books anymore. So everyone's doing graphic novels or collections of short stories. So I, th I think that's changed, I don't know, I guess the scope and the ambition of cartoonists. I mean, young cartoonists walked up, walk up to me now and say, I want to be a graphic novelist. <laughs> Not I want to be a cartoonist or a comic book artist, but I want to be a graphic novelist. Um, so more and more um, young cartoonists are thinking in terms of, of um, the long-term form. I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing, because probably cartoonists should think um, you know, a, little, a little smaller before they, they get to these epic 300 or 700 page graphic novels. I'm forgetting what your question was. Does the widespread acceptance change comics? Like when I discovered comics as a kid, they were a little transgressive. You know, they were kind of underground. They were all these things that appealed to me as almost an outsider art form. Yeah, right. No, I, I know where you're going with this. And we, we do have Johnny Ryan to, uh, <laughs> single-handed. Well, you know, it's an evolution. I mean, you know, underground comics, you know, certainly was all about that. I mean, most of the best underground comics were transgressive in one way or another. You know, whether it was, you know, Robert Crumb or S. Clay Wilson really pushing the boundaries of, you know, what constituted you know, acceptable. Um, or someone like Jack Jackson writing the history of um, the American West from an iconoclastic point of view. And so, you know, in a way, yes, comics have lost something by not being the outsider, marginal um, art form that it had been in the 60s and 70s and, and going into the 80s. You know, but on the other hand, you know, I don't think there's anything that prevents a cartoonist from doing good work within the contemporary context or even doing transgressive work if that's what he chooses to do. I mean, in a way, you know, the, the whole idea of transgressive work has been co-opted by mainstream culture. So I'm not even sure that such a thing exists anymore. One of the attitudes we had when we were publishing in the 1980s, and this proved to be wrong, as so many of our, our ideas were, but to me, good cartooning was good cartooning, whether it was you know the Hernandez brothers doing Love and Rockets and exploring sexuality in a very uh, open way, or publishing Little Orphan Annie, which we did. I guess we did that in the 1990s, but we published Popeye and Prince Valiant in the 1980s. And to me, it was all just good cartooning even though they were radically different, and that anybody who appreciated good cartooning should appreciate them. And, and that was not the case. What was really happening is that we were breaking up this market. I mean, the people who bought Prince Valiant did not necessarily buy uh, Dan Klaus. And so what you have now is this fragmentation of the market where, I mean, different books are selling to different people. You know, this whole boom in graphic novels, this alleged boom in graphic novels over the last 10 years, I think the problem is that people are still not buying, in, in large quantities, comics because they're comics. You know, I think they're buying them because of, of the particular subject matter, which I think is a problem only to the extent that I worry that you know, the comics medium itself is not what's being appreciated. It's just sort of you know, the particular subject matter. I'm sure that most people who bought Mao's did not buy Mao's because it was a comic. They bought yeah, Mao's because they wanted to read about the Holocaust. It just happened to be a comic. That's probably true of Alison Bechtel's work. I've not heard it phrased that way, you know, as a problem, and it's not something I thought about much before you just said that, of readers reading comics who aren't interested in comics at all. I, mean, I think it's true. I mean, I think people go, you know, go see movies because they're movies. They might go see a, uh, you know, a movie because of the subject matter, but they also go because it's a movie and they want that experience. They want that, you know, the experience of either sitting in the theater or sitting in their living room and watching the screen. Um, and, and they want the experience of the vocabulary of movies, you know. 
um, all the things that we've internalized over the years. I don't think that's true of comics. You know, I think a really, really tiny portion of the public and probably a minority of the comics buying public or the graphic novel buying public are buying them because they're graphic novels and because they're getting a unique experience from that graphic novel that they can only get from a comic. That bugs me. <laughs> I never considered it because everyone I know who I talk to about comics, you know, is essentially a comics fan. Um, exactly. I'm curious about young people that go to school for comics and if you had any thoughts on that because it seems like debt has become such an issue for, for I guess, all of America, but certainly young people that come out of school that have accrued massive debt, maybe studying art or studying comics. Do you have any advice for these people? Do you feel like the schools are misrepresenting what they offer? Well, I'm sure the fast food industry will welcome them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was up at um, CCS in Vermont talking to uh, students there, and um, there's a great sense of camaraderie there. You have all these highly motivated students who are really passionate about comics, and I have no idea what they're going to do. Only a handful of them are probably going to make a living even drawing, much less doing comics. I mean, it's so difficult to make a living doing comics. So, I don't know. I, you know, I, have, I have mixed feelings about all of these these you know, comic schools that have sprouted up, um, Savannah, and of course SVA, which has been around forever. Most of the cartoonists that I like have not gone to cartooning schools, which is, you know, not to say that cartooning schools can't teach a lot of skills, but I, you know, I, I do, I do worry that they're just churning out these students, you know, with no possible, you know, po no possibility of succeeding as cartoonists. I mean, it's not that they should be discouraged, but they should, you know, they do have to approach it realistically. I think our whole higher education system is, is, is troublesome in the sense that it's asking immature people to make long-term decisions. But um, that's a little off topic. So I was curious about nostalgia and what your relationship is with it. Does it inform your work? God, I don't think so. Now, do you, do you mean, does it inform my publishing? I mean, my, my what I publish? Or? I kind of thought of it in any way. You know, does it in, inform your interview subjects? Or do you even look at any comics from your childhood? And Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 I do. I do. But, you know, I try not to. I try not to let nostalgia, you know, affect my my perception. Because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm crowding 60. I do not want my aesthetic determinations to be dictated by what I you know, watched and, and read when I was 12. It's hard not to. I mean, it's especially hard not to, in, you know, in our kind of culture where we're just saturated in pop culture. I mean, I'm a, I'm a kid of the movies. I mean, I grew up watching movies. My dad took me to movies every weekend before there were, you know, VCRs. And I'm constantly questioning whether or not I liked a particular movie because I happened to see it when I was, you know, 14 years old or whether it was really any good. And I try not to let, you know, nostalgia affect my perception. It's kind of a dangerous thing to do. You had sent us that Sendak interview, and you talk, you know, both of you talk a little bit about memory and artists sort of trying to um, recall their earliest memories. And it's, it's a funny thing because it's almost at odds with nostalgia in a way, but I know a lot of artists that, you know, uh -huh. they try to think in those terms and, and try to kind of reach back to a different perspective maybe. Yeah, well, I think that's different. I mean, I think that, that um, I think what Maurice, you know, was engaged in was something far, far different, far better than just indulging in nostalgia. I mean, he was trying to, you know, reach back and to those deep roots of childhood memory and, and make sense of them. Right. I mean, well, one funny thing about Maurice is I never read Maurice when I was a kid. And I never even read Maurice to my kid. So I'm approaching Maurice Sendak's work, I was completely free of any nostalgic impulse whatsoever. I didn't. I don't think I, ever, I actually ever told Maurice this, um, but I actually had to read all of Maurice's work in the year leading up to my interview with him. Before that, I'd read virtually nothing. Yeah, I was curious to talk to you about your interviewing strategies and process. Is that typical, revisiting an author's work or visiting an author's work in its entirety before you talk to them? Absolutely. I, I immerse myself in the artist's work. I started doing that later than I wanted to looking back on the people I've interviewed. I mean, I look back at my like interview with Jack Kirby, and I, I wish I had known more about Kirby's work. I mean, I wish I had known as much as I do now, and I, I didn't. And partly, it's probably because the work wasn't available. 
I mean, now, you know, you can, you can buy so much of Kirby's work from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Back then, I probably, I only knew what I knew. I only knew what I, you know, I had read through the years. But, you know, slowly over the years, I started re doing more and more research with interview subjects because I just thought it was my obligation, my responsibility to know as much about the artist as possible, to cover as much territory as possible. And that's what I did with Maurice, um, even though it didn't work, it worked out completely differently. But I go into an interview, you know, with a lot of notes. I don't really go in with questions per se, but I go in with a lot of notes and a general sense of how I, you know, what kind of questions I want to ask the artist. But I try to keep it organic, so I don't really write down questions. When I, when I interviewed Charles Schultz, uh, I actually went on a two-day retreat. I rented a little cabin, and I had a, a laptop, and I just poured through tons and tons of research um, with peanuts and just came up with a, a literally a binder full of notes that I brought with me to interview him. I don't do that you know, with every subject, although I did do it with Maurice. But yeah, I try to be as, as thoroughly grounded in the artist's work as I can because you just never know what, you know, what might come up in conversation that you can grab onto or, you know, what, what you might want to ask him about or what he brings up that you should be familiar with. But we're at weeks researching me, right? <laughs> <laughs> what motivates you to interview these people? Well, now what motivates me is I, I, I guess I see historical reasons to do this. You know, back when I was doing it, um, I'm not sure I had a very clear-cut motivation. I just thought somehow it was important to get their thoughts on the record. I mean, I guess there are different motivations for different interview subjects. If you interview someone like Art Spiegelman, you know, what you're looking for, I think, are aesthetic insights. I mean, because Art is so terrifically analytical, and you want to get him talking about specific works and specific artists, and you want to ask him... Um, questions that he might not ask himself in the course of his own research and understanding of the artist. And you want to pull things out of him. A lot of cartoonists you want to you want to interview for purely historical reasons because they've just you know had such a long and uh, fascinating career, and you want to get facts down, or you want to you want to get their experiences down, and that's not going to happen unless you interview them. What I wanted to do with Maurice was to do a career-spanning interview because I hadn't read one before. I mean, it happened in an entirely different way, just unfolded differently. But that was my, my goal, was to just start from his earliest days and ask him all the kinds of questions that, that I couldn't find anyone had asked him. I think he's such an you know, important historical figure. When you're interviewing these guys, are you sort of a fan? Is that something you have to control a little bit? Well, as I get older, I think less so. I'm trying to think back as, you know, when I interviewed somebody, I was... Um, goggle-eyed over. And, you know, I, I don't think I had that kind of gushing fan impulse even when I was younger. I remember when I interviewed, I mean, one of my favorite people, one of my, my uh, favorite artists is Ralph Steadman, and I remember interviewing him. And, you know, I don't remember being tongue-tied. I mean, I remember, um, I mean, I, I remember being in awe of him, you know, as I still am. But I remember my mission was to poke and probe and, to, you know, to ask him, you know, as good a questions or as, as penetrating a questions as I could. And he was open to that. And so, you know, when I get into that mode, I mean, that I'm there. I'm, you know, I, I, I guess I eschew all that kind of fan adulation. Keep that in private. I interviewed Gil Kane in 77. And, I mean, to me, I was like 20, I don't know what I was, 24 or something like that. And he was just this monumental figure. And even then, I was still, I was interested in, you know, in basically just getting him to talk. That was my goal. And just asking him questions that would allow him to discourse. So, no, that's one problem I never had. What impact has the rule of fatherhood had on your work? I don't, I don't know. That's, that's like too difficult a question for me to, to give a knowing answer. Um, my writing slowed down quite a bit when I became a father in 1994. And I honestly can't tell you if it's because I simply didn't have the time because, you know, having do, do either any of you guys have kids? No. Yeah. That means you got a lot of time. <laughs> and I remember, of course, when I didn't have a kid, I mean, I just had an enormous amount of time. I mean, I could spend all night, you know, writing. And, and of course, I wanted to spend a lot of time with my kid. I wanted to be, uh, you know, a, a participatory father. So there was that. But I can't say with any certainty that that is 
what did it. I think I was, um, it was 94. I mean, things outside of my becoming a father were affecting the professional environment. You know, to a large extent, we had won the, the creator rights battle. And, you know, comics were more and more, you know, stepping outside the direct sales market ghetto. So a lot of these battles we had won, and I'm not sure I really had, you know, as much interest in continuing fighting these battles as I had before. I mean, it could be a combination. When we started becoming a book publisher, I mean, a real book publisher, and that probably started in the 90s, it probably required more of my time. I mean, I think back to, like, the, uh, the 80s, and, I, I mean, I would stay at the office until 2 or 3 in the morning just, you know, in a fever pitch writing stuff for the comics journal. And now I don't, you know, I have to, I have to squeeze time in between doing everything else. My first priority is to is toward the authors we publish, and I guess I feel guilty if I'm you know writing something and I'm you know neglecting a book. I would like to talk a little bit about goals. From the outside, it seems like you've accomplished a terrific amount. Do you think in those terms, and if so, what goals are you working towards now? The main goal is to publish as good of books as we can. I mean, that's our goal, and it's sort of unchanging. You know, I always feel like I should, like, have new goals. You know, I should get up in the morning and go, well, what's today's new goal? But really, you know, the goal is, is to find and publish the best, po the best work we possibly can. One slight shift, I guess, is that we're publishing prose novels. Um, we started doing that about four years or five years ago when we published Alex Thoreau's Laura Warholic novel, uh, which is a, a big literary novel. And we published a number of novels since then. In fact, I'm proofreading Stephen Dixon's um, big novel, His Wife Leaves Him, right now. That was always one of my ambitions, um, you know, as early as the 80s. And maybe, you know, it might have been one of the things I wanted to do in the, in the 70s when I had this dream of starting a publishing company, of publishing literary novels. And that's something I always wanted to do and I never had the time to do it. And we are doing it a little bit more now than we ever have. So I wouldn't mind branching out from comics and publishing other things. But I also realize that comics is what we know best, and so we know how to sell and market best. It's probably the art form I'm most intimate with. So you know, I have to keep the focus on that. But I also do, you know, enjoy publishing other kinds of things. I you know, I want to publish um, collections of essays, for example. One of my one of my great ambitions is to publish a collection of essays by Donald Phelps who is a uh, critic, a very underrated critic, but I think one of the great critics of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, he's written about comics and comic strips, and, um, but also novels and poetry and film. So I, I, I have these ambitions um, that go beyond publishing graphic novels, but I also want to maintain the focus of publishing graphic novels and, and cartoon collections. All right. I guess that brings us to the end of our time. Do you have something you want to plug? I'm very pleased with the uh, EC books that are coming out. We have two books at the printer right now, which is a collection of Jack Davis and Al Williamson. And then the, the books after that are by uh, Johnny Craig and Al Feldstein. Let me see. I, I can tell you what I just put to bed, which people should look for in the next couple of months. There's a book by Graham Chaffee. The title is Good Dog. Graham was an artist who we published in the 1990s. He was one of those real contenders. I thought he could go on to do great work, and he did two graphic novels and then just dropped out, just kind of vanished. And I didn't know that he started a tattoo business because, of course, he wanted to make a living, which graphic novels were not about to do for him. And then he resurfaced recently, and he um, sent me this more or less finished graphic novel, which was just beautifully done, called Good Dog. I just put that to bed. I'm putting to bed a great graphic novel by Kathy Malkasian. It's a Percy Gloom graphic novel called Wake Up, Percy Gloom. I think Kathy is um, one of the great unsung cartoonists working today. We published two of her graphic novels. So that'll be out in a couple of months. And uh, I'm putting the finishing touches on a gigantic uh, collection of Willard Mullen baseball cartoons. Do you know who Willard Mullen is? No, I'm not familiar. Like the Bill Malden of sports cartooning. Absolutely sensational cartoonist. Worked uh, from like the 19... 30s to the 1970s, and I just realized looking at his work um, how there are um, touches of Will Eisner to his work, except that he was working before Eisner. So I guess that there are touches of um, Willard Mullen in, in Eisner's work, but the brush strokes uh, are very Eisnerian. He's just a masterful cartoonist, but he was, so he's sort of under everybody's radar. 
we're putting out a coffee table book of his work, which I'm really pleased with. And, you know, and, and we're putting out Stephen Dixon's uh, prose novel, His Wife Leaves Him, which is a, an amazing tour de force. It's a, um, it's a dense 400-page novel that is a single paragraph. It is just mesmerizing. Well, thank you very much for talking with us. Thanks for uh, letting me talk to you. Follow us on Twitter, at Jason Lex, at Jim Rugg, and our producer, at Ed Fisher.